I'm the Property Funder, better known as Michael Dean, and this is the Property Funder podcast. I'm a successful entrepreneur, investor, NED and advisor. As co-founder of Avermore Capital, I'm best known for having financed over a billion pounds of property developments and investments by value during my career so far. During my time in business, I've come across an incredibly broad spectrum of successful people all with their own unique experiences working in a variety of industries. I want to speak to these people and learn more about them. I'm not looking to have the world's biggest podcast, so if just one person benefits from what my guests have to say, then that to me would look like success. And if you are that one person, then you should probably not tell anyone about this. Right, welcome to the Property Funder podcast. Um, if you are new to the podcast and you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and if you can possibly do so, give us a five star uh, five star rating. Now, uh, I'd like to introduce my guest, or should I say, I'd like my guest to introduce himself. Um, Jonathan, what's your name? Talk about your, bi- talk about your business, and please describe what your business does. Well, Michael, thank you. It's, uh, congratulations on having your own podcast. Very impressive and uh, honoured to be here. Um, my name is Jonathan Bowman Perks and um, my wife and I run a business called Inspiring Leadership International. Um, what we do is inspire, challenge and support leaders, CEOs and top teams around the world. And uh, also, like uh, Michael, we have our own podcast and 265 episodes so far with some fascinating people from Olympians to SAS officers and generals and a lot of CEOs um, to share their experience about people they found as inspiring leaders and hopefully inspire the rest of us. So that's uh, that's it, Michael. And Jonathan, what inspired you? Sorry, no pun intended, but what inspired you to start podcasting um you you're now 265 podcasts in you're top one and a half percent of global podcasters worldwide um you've obviously made a great success of it but of of all things to do why why a podcast and uh what brought that about yeah i think i think it was perhaps a question we might talk about at some stage but it it was turning what others would call a vulnerability or weakness into my superpower. So I am neurodiverse, I think is the the woke term these days, um, which means I'm dyslexic. Um, but I, I have good company with people like Richard Branson and others who are. And I think when I was struggling and my teacher unkindly aged probably about six said I was thick and I was going to become a dustman because I couldn't spell, and I couldn't do my maths. She didn't know that I had dyslexia and dyscalculia, nor in those days when I was growing up many years ago, uh, was there any understanding of, of people's special needs or any neurodiverse aspects. So my mother said, don't worry, darling. He said, you'll be good with people. And and so it's really this, this interest I have in what being almost like a, someone who's interested in learning. And I'll tell my father's story at some stage. It's not perhaps relevant now, but 
the things that happened to me um, shaped the leader I am today and why I'm interested in being a leader who develops other leaders and looking for the good in people. And I, because I found it hard, you know, people would say, can you write an article? Um, I've written a book. Uh, my wife and I have written a book as well. So Inspiring Leadership is my book, my wife's book, Inspiring Women Leaders. And then together we did Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders and then a version on International Women Days, uh, Top Tips for Inspiring Women Leaders. But I found that really hard. And I thought, I actually like just chatting, as you can tell now. And I also like doing videos. So when I was down at a reunion of my platoon at Sandhurst, I managed to arrange to interview the commandant at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. And um, he was a fascinating gay uh, guy who had so much to share. And I did this little recording. And, and then I made that into something, met a guy, he taught me how to do podcasts and I just had a go at it and, and someone else helped me do it. And then more and more myself and my assistant do it all ourselves. Uh, but you do need a bit of guidance and uh, and help to get going with podcasts. I think it is. It's not something that you can easily do on your own. But if it's your calling, then it's the right thing to do. I think certainly from my perspective, I felt that it, it the idea for the podcast actually came from my wife and she thought it'd be something that it would be interesting and be good for me to do and so far I found it very fulfilling the, the purpose for me is really to interview you know inspiring and interesting people like yourself and hopefully the audience which I think a lot of which will be aspiring entrepreneurs will take uh, again will take that inspiration and, and uh, will get something from it and, and hopefully it will act as, as part of the springboard to enable them to go to go further with their careers um so out of the 265 people that you've interviewed i'd probably be unfair if i asked you to name your you, you know your your favorite because it's probably a bit like asking you to choose which of your favorite children um you have but were there any and not necessarily for good reasons but were, were there any of your podcast guests that really stand out and um that you you've thought mm, I'd like to I'd like to talk to them again for example or that that was a mm. particularly good mm. one or particularly unusual one um obviously yeah. I've, been a, I've been a guest on your podcast as well but I I, I certainly don't uh, you could certainly exclude me from from that particular uh mm -hmm. list yeah well I mean as you say uh, we we you and I had a great conversation and and each time everybody brings something different um and so it, it might be people who um, Jamie Waller, who's coming up shortly, you know, and he was on Necker Island with Richard Branson, this picture, the two of them together as an entrepreneur who began from a really tough background, but is super motivated to create businesses, grow businesses, but also to be an ambassador for the Prince's Trust, helping others, giving back to others. That's a recent one that comes to mind. Two particularly that were truly inspiring and are still truly inspiring is my old boss, General the Lord Dannett, Richard Dannett, who was head of the British Army. And uh, I remember in a wet wood somewhere in Germany and he said, Jonathan, what's your life plan? I said, well, General, I, Colonel, I don't have a life plan. He said, well, if you don't, you're going to end up in somebody else's life plan. And guess what they've got planned for you? I said, I don't know. And he he lifted up his thumb and his first finger and there's a very small gap between them. And he said, they've got not very much planned for you. So make sure you have a plan. It may change, but have a life plan. 
he was great, uh, a truly inspiring leader. And then the other one, which was an absolute joy, was General David Petraeus, who was the director of the CIA. Wow. And uh, and also he did the surge operations in Iraq. He had his own personal drama, which he, he's come back from uh, in his personal life, which became very public uh, with the FBI investigating him. But just a truly inspiring leader who then introduced me to my schoolboy hero, Admiral Bill McRaven, whose book here, The Wisdom of the Bullfrog, Leadership Made Simple But Not Easy. Um, he, if you've not come across him, does the, one of the most motivational talks on YouTube, which is called First Make Your Bed. And um, mm. he was a Navy SEAL for 34 years and the longest serving uh, Navy SEAL, hence become the, given the title of the Bullfrog. Because um, they have a, a frogman outside uh, SEAL training headquarters, and uh, I'm really looking forward to getting him on. He's uh, he's travelling at the moment, um, but he he is definitely coming on the podcast, and and he is someone uh, that I'm just really looking forward to. Yeah, well, I have to say I'm I'm looking forward to tuning into that one because it sounds like it'd be fantastic. Um, I I like that concept of first make your bed. It um, I have a, have a sneaky suspicion that uh, Jordan B. Peterson may have, uh, what is it? Uh, I think he he, he also uh, has that as one of his uh, 12 rules for life or, or, or tidy your room or something like that. So uh, it sounds like um, uh, Bill McRaven may, may have been the first one to come up with that. And uh, whether whether it's by uh, by accident or otherwise, it seems to have also ended up with, uh, yeah, well, uh, with, with Jordan Peterson as well. Uh, it, it is interesting, Jordan Peterson. I, I, I know a lot of people find him very popular. I think he got himself in some sticky water with some of his rather extreme views, which were considered to be not very uh, politically correct these days. Uh, however, um, very interesting guy. And, and that raises the point that, you know, you go back to I remember listening to cassette tapes of motivational people like Earl Nightingale. Now, that would take anybody back. Earl Nightingale. Have a listen to him, The Strangest Secret. And, and he was an American broadcaster. And I was listening. He was some, you know, one of the first kind of motivational speakers. And um, uh, Brian Tracy and people like mm. this, who, who, and then, of course, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits. And many of the work that people, you know, um, rich, rich, you know, um, what's it, rich dad, poor dad. Rob, like Robert, Ki Robert Kiyosaki. Robert Kiyosaki. But then that that uh, got me in some terrible sticky conditions where I got uh, ripped off over property investments by a fraudster. But that's a whole story ending up in a court case and a woman going to jail for defrauding about 30 of us. Um, so I, I was rather taken in by that. And she used that as her scam to draw people in. And I lost okay. A lot of money. Kim, are you happy to talk about that? I, I guess yeah, that. I guess yeah. that. I guess particularly for for a lot of our audience, there there may be some lessons there to be I learned think, as I well. There definitely are some lessons. Okay, let's. This is uh, very raw and very front of mind. Um, firstly, the damage. I think I lost three hundred thousand. It was all my life savings, all my mother's inheritance, um, to a woman who's now in jail from Australia. She put herself out as a property developer. She came on one of the coaching courses, which someone was using the rich dad, poor dad concept um, with a board game and everything else that went there. And this is a way of, you know, using coaching to get you to invest. And all I and my uh, my ex-wife, in fact, I think it probably brought my first marriage to a, a close because there was so much stress associated with this for 10 years. Um, 
was that um, I just wanted to buy, we had enough money to buy one flat in the UK. That's what we want to do. But this um, very persuasive Australian lady who was in property development and sales and had all the contacts and that kind of stuff said, no, no, you don't want to you know, buy one, you want to buy a block. And you don't want to buy it here, you want to buy it in Cyprus. Cyprus is a great place. There's so much opportunities and there's it's the sun and you can you can buy it off plan. And I've got this developer who's built all these developments everywhere. He'll fly you out there. You can go and see it and uh, you build it off plan. And then you flip and flip and flip. And you make loads of money. And it's, you know, it's just it's just a money machine. And you do this and then you sell again and then you do this. And, and so, you know, your portfolio just expands. So if something appears to be too good to be true, it's not true and run a mile in the other direction. Um, if everybody has been incredibly stupid and they missed this great opportunity, but I've now found the secret to your wealth for the future is invest in this. And this is where you're going to make your millions. Just be very careful. Um, and I'll just go on to say that the other thing which is interesting, 30 of us got scammed. We had a court case. We took the woman to court. The police were on her case for some time. And this but, was in the UK. You took it to this court was in the in, UK. In the UK, and she was gone to jail for many years, but we didn't get our money back. The millions that she took from us all, she's stowed away somewhere. And when she comes out of jail, she'll go and happily make use of it. So that isn't justice. The fact that she's gone to jail, it is justice. But the fact that we lost all our money to her because the promise of, you know, loads of people and companies that would buy it from us and a whole sales team, which she never had any of it. She just wanted us to make the first investment. But what's interesting is scammers draw scammers in. So the person she introduced us in Cyprus was a property fraudster who, who was building properties by all means. But the lawyers involved out there who they got us to meet and the bankers were also corrupt in Cyprus. And Cyprus is, you know, spy center for Russians and all sorts of people to come onto the island. A lot of Russian money going through there. Um, and um when I was in a deep, dark hole, because I had, I think I had 10 properties that I'd have been invested in, I should have smelt a rat when the first property that I was investing in, which was a block, when I got there to visit it, he'd already sold one of the the um, penthouse suites in the block to somebody else. But I bought the block. Go, oh, sorry, it's a mistake here. But but have these ones over here. These are much better. And it was a scam um, because once had them i had to keep paying the installments but no one was buying it from us there was no further sell on so i was left with way overextending myself and probably would have gone completely bankrupt um but what was very disappointing was that and i think i'll i'll leave the man's name out because he was once a friend of mine someone who i considered to be a friend um said he'd help me out he'd introduce me to a multi-billionaire who was from sri lanka and he did lots of property and that kind of stuff and this guy and my friend Craig went to and from in Cyprus to to try and sell the properties for me. And, and he was going to he was going to buy them from me. Um, actually, I think they spent their time in lap dancing bars and certainly dealing with lots of other fraudulent people. And when I finally mentioned this man's name, um, somebody else said, you do realize he's been uh, to jail for three years for property fraud in Spain. I went, no, really? And he said, yeah. So I rang up my friend who was godfather to my daughter. And I said, this guy, I actually mentioned his name, Silver Carmichael, he's been to jail. 
oh yeah but he's he's better now he, he's no longer bad i said i asked you time and again is he genuine it seems something doesn't add up um and he's always a storyteller and this kind of stuff and he goes oh yeah but but he changed i said why didn't you tell me and i asked you specifically was he genuine was there anything i should know and you kept it from me oh yeah yeah i'm sorry yeah anyway end of that friendship um but actually i put that they were on bail investigated by the police for a, a while but then i i was in a difficult corner with uh, my divorce and the tough times that rolled out from that whole crisis and and i just didn't want any more drama so i let them i i, I dropped the case against them but they should have gone to jail prepare them for defrauding me so yeah that's one hell of a story isn't it Michael yeah that's uh, I mean it's uh it sounds like a really trying and challenging situation and certainly certainly one that you don't really wish on anyone but actually is is it's not it, it's not a unique situation as well in in the world of property and I think if you work in the real estate industry for long enough someone is someone will try to defraud you at some point and we we were quite fortunate thanks to having uh, you know having some insurance that that covered us on this but uh, ultimately we have we have faced situations in the past where people have looked to borrow money from us to buy properties from people who didn't actually own the property that they were claiming to sell and normally you can smell the rat and you can get you find a way out of it or your lawyers you know your lawyers tell you that things don't feel right but in this situation someone had faked um faked papers on a probate uh on on, on a probate document and claimed that they were the owner of a property and they'd inherited it via probate and um and ultimately our our client ended up buying a property from someone who didn't actually own it and we lent money against it even advanced money against the refurbishment um and and in the end uh, the the actual owner was in got in touch with the land registry and said um well actually no i haven't sold this property um why are you why are you trying to register it under someone else's name wow. and uh, and obviously, fortunately, we were in a position where after after a period of time, we were repaid by our insurers. The first time that had happened then over half a billion pounds worth of lending. Um, but, you know, our client wasn't so lucky. It, it just goes to show there's there are there are so many people in the real estate industry that will. Uh, and certainly it's, it's something to learn from if you're, you know, if you're relatively early in your your career as a as an entrepreneur, as a property investor, particular, um, it's a, you know, th there are sharks out there, and you have to you have to do your due diligence. I mean, to that end, just just, just keep just keeping with it for a minute. Yeah. That, that term you use, sharks, it is very interesting that um, as I've almost been eaten by a shark once in the Gulf of Mexico, and that's a long story with a uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine, Mandy, who decided that while we were out shark fishing, she needed a pee mentioned to my relation who had the shark fishing boat could she go and use the loo and he said there is no loo you're just gonna have to pee over the side she goes i'm not gonna do that so he said okay we'll motor out further out into deeper water where there's there's no sharks and we'll put the radar on to check for to sharks and uh so you know you can go down the ladder and have a pee so she goes down she goes john i'm really scared would you go first you're a gentleman and an officer in the army and so i climbed down and I hate sharks anyway, but I climbed down into shark infested water, 
to tread water while she has a pee and she takes a long time. And uh, then <laughs> the relation goes, get in, there's a shark coming. <laughs> and sure enough, I can see like out of jaws, this fin and the whole back of this shark at about a hundred meters. Now that's not far from a boat. And so she's slowly getting up. I said, Mandy, get in quickly, quickly. And I'm trying to get up. But but the shark, is, he says, really close. I go, I knew it was close. <laughs> and I actually cleared three steps into the boat in a second. I don't know how. It's like you find this superhuman strength when you know your life's at, at threat. And then, boom, the, the actual shark went against the side of the boat. It didn't physically touch, but it was so close. The whole boat and the riggings and the, the rods wow. were swinging. And... Uh, yeah, it was damn close. So sharks smell blood in the water as they did because Mandy didn't tell me it was the wrong time of the month, which is why the sharks had been coming in. And um, they smelt blood in the water with the Cyprus fraudster um, and the fraudulent property developer who was a Cypriot and the fraudulent bankers and the fraudulent accountants. And then the group of 30s who've been defrauded by this woman, Sasha Morris, she's in the in the courts, you'll, you'll see her court case. Sasha Morris pulled all these people in. Then we needed help. And so we got approached by a lawyer who was going to act on behalf of the group, a group lawsuit against her. The lawyer who came to help us was another fraudster on top of the fraudster who was with my friend, who was the Sri Lankan um convict who'd been to jail for property fraud so they just they smell when you're a bit like little old lady who gets defrauded and someone comes along let me help you and we'll consolidate all your money that you've got remaining into one bank account and it happens to be his bank account and then she loses all that too so just stop and check and get someone reputable because there's a lot of sharks swimming in the property investment pool mm. yeah and i and i i think the the truth of the matter is, is that uh, there's sometimes a misconception that everyone in the property game in particular, in business generally, particularly in the property game, um, is reputable and honest and and behaves with integrity. But the reality is it doesn't it doesn't always work like that. And certainly if you're if you're not experienced and you're not well networked and net well connected, um, you can definitely get caught out. So do, you, um, do, do your due diligence is the big thing. And I did a bit of due diligence with a few people, asked for references and things, and 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 it wasn't deep enough. You yeah. really need to do your due diligence. And if you don't feel comfortable about it, pull out, don't go into it. Do not rush into this. Yeah, as the hair and I used to say, if we lend too much money against the property, eventually in time house prices etc that we'll probably get our money back um just a bit slower than we might necessarily like but if you lend money on a fraudulent transaction for example uh, or you lend money to a fraudster or or what have you um you know your recovery your recovery in that situation is going to be next to zero so um well i you know i think i wish you luck on and the recovery side of that uh, we'll, ne we'll, no, we'll never get it back you just have to and i think this is the other lesson in life is is for a long time i carried a big grievance about that um and the impact on me and the breakdown of the marriage and things like that but actually you know what i'm a stoic and i've become a stoic more than i have before that control the controllables i couldn't control what these fraudsters did but i could control how i respond to what happened to me my thoughts and my actions and actually, what I do have is the, the ability to decide. And I made 
bad judgment calls. Mm -hmm. I made bad judgment calls. I didn't do my due diligence and I faced the consequences. And what you had to do is go, it was 300,000 pounds I had. I no longer have that. So I'm going to start all over again and I'll make enough money to be able to pay off my mortgage and things like that. And, and it just takes you longer and you have to, a bit like Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep your head one all around losing it, if you lose it all on one top, one uh, toss of pitch and toss, toss and, and never breathe a word about your loss. I think that's very much now what I've learned. But at the time, I complained and whinged about it way too long. And it's funny enough, I haven't really talked about it or thought about it for about 10 years until we, we had this conversation now. So so I think, as, as my mother once said to me when I'd been badly dealt with by a general in the army and I was annoyed about it and wrote about it in a little notebook, and she read the notebook because she said, darling, that's lovely, now burn it, because he doesn't care at all about you. He's not going to be thinking about it, but you are, and you're still carrying that grievance with you. He's let go of it, not even thought about it. So don't let it eat you up, move on move on do you think do you think episodes like that has have enabled you to be more stoic and and and, and maybe less attached to less attached to outcomes as a consequence of that uh, it took me a long time to get through it but undoubtedly now i'm you know i'm in my 60s now and um i wish i had the wisdom i have now when i was in my 30s uh, of course you do. Um, but I also went on a fabulous program, which I recommend to anybody listening to your podcast called the Hoffman Institute. And I interviewed the uh, the managing director of the Hoffman Institute UK. It's one of the best development programs ever done. Seven days with 23 other people from around the world looking back at your own childhood and the things that the patterns had shaped you uh, and the behaviours you have today and learning, as you were just saying, non-attachment and non-judgment and non-critical approaches to yourself and to others. They did the best they could with what they had. And yeah, you'll meet some pretty evil bastards in the world. Now, firstly, um, look for radiators, not drains, people who add energy to your life, not those who suck it out of you like Harry Potter's Dementors. But, but also, the more I learn to be not attached to my house here or the car I have or a situation or a title or a job role I have, that when situations change, as they often do with disastrous consequences, you know, like my brother David, who I was very fond of, my middle brother, my brother Graham uh, is the eldest, and uh, David died 18 months ago. Now, I can't bring him back. You know, I remember fondly, and I have a picture that my wife got a collection of pictures, those who can see the video of your podcast and those who can't picture my brother David and my brother Graham and Graham was attacked and stabbed by a very unhinged individual who's the court case coming up but these things happen I couldn't control what happened but I can control how I think about and respond to those things and to not be attached to how things should have been and accept how things are and then what am I going to do about it and and I think it's that skill of accepting things as they are rather than as you wanted them to be where they're not i think it really helps me a lot and and the leaders i coach as well do you does does that extend to also how how you feel about what others think of you because i think one of the things 
in, in my own personal case I think I still I'm, I'm I'm trying to get into that non that space of non-attachment I'm trying to embrace the chaos but I'm personally struggling with it and I guess I appreciate that it's a process it's a journey and it will wax and wane but I think one of the areas that I personally still struggle with is that I still care very deeply about what people think of me um have have you got to that point now where you're you're less bothered about what people think of you um especially compared to when you were younger yeah yeah, yeah. I, I'm I really relate to that uh there is a wonderful book called um um radical candor is the book is all about radical candor and and there's a like a four box matrix where caring and also worrying about what it means to you. if you can have radical candor you care about the other person you, you you're thoughtful and sensitive but you're honest with them and open but at the other end is ruinous empathy where you really are trying to be empathetic with people but you don't really tell them what you think um and uh that in itself is a problem there's a there's a there's a term called the art of acquiescence the art of acquiescence and that is something which i am trying to practice it's very much in the stoic philosophy marcus aurelius the emperor seneca epictetus and the others this idea of accepting what is and so you've got the the zen master who has the favorite glass vase that is worth thousands of his currency at that time and um, people would come and look at it and they said, it's beautiful vase. And he goes, yes, but it's broken. And they go, no, no, it's not broken. It's, it's lovely. He said it's broken. And they thought, a bit strange of him to say that. And he, one day, one of his friends picks it up, says, beautiful vase. And it slips from his wet fingers and smashes into pieces on the floor. And he goes, see, I told you it was broken. <coughs> that he was, he was ready for the fact that one day it would be broken. And the Japanese actually have this art where they glue together those vases and they use very expensive gold paste to make it into this remade thing. But they accept that it is nothing in life like our own lives. I'm, I'm, I'm more than, you know, damaged in so many different ways. But I'm accepting my blemishes and my faults much more now than when I was younger. I worried too much what others thought about me, particularly when I was an army officer, the mask I put on for 20 years as an army officer, how I should be, how officers should dress, how you should behave, the way you should act. What was the real version of Michael Dean behind the mask that you're wearing? And and also this this art of, as someone once wisely said to me, Jonathan, if you worry what other people think about you, you'd be surprised how little they do. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves and they worry about how they look. And, and what they look like on Teams or Zoom. They're looking at their own image. It's almost like these days we're so bloody vain. We, it's almost like you're having a conversation with someone. They're holding a mirror up to you as you're talking to them, just so you can see how you look and whether your, your shirt's looking good. And, and you're more focused on yourself. And that's why I now turn off my own camera so I can't see my view, so I can focus on the person I'm coaching uh, wherever they might be in the world. So I do think beware ruinous empathy practice the art of acquiescence and um, people are not thinking about you they're thinking about themselves so let go of it and move on it's much healthier i i think that that's really true uh, i often have that conversation with um you know friends and uh, friends and colleagues that sometimes they 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 worry about what people are saying about them and you're entirely right that 
you, most people are obsessed with themselves. I think I said it on your on your podcast and my top tip from, from a sales perspective that people love to talk about themselves. If you give someone the chance to talk about themselves, um, they're far, far more likely to like you than if you spend that time talking about yourself or what you're trying to or what you're trying to sell. You are so, so you are so right, Michael. And I, I remember it's almost like when you try too much, it, it backfires on you. I remember I was trying to oversell to a client some years ago. And rather than be interested in him and finding out about his problem, I was just trying to push, you know, a pitch to him. And he he backed off. And the more you try and oversell yourself, your product, who you are, what you can do for them, the less they buy it. And and this other thing about worrying about what other people think, as my old sergeant major would say in good blunt army language, and, and this is a quote from him. So here we go. He said, sir, you mistake me for somebody who gives a shit. You know, I don't care. I'm not interested in what you think about me. And 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 I think to have a healthy level of not caring too much, and I think this is what damages people. You know, uh, there's even a book called Women Who Care Too Much. Um, th- this, that we worry too much about our impact on others. Yes, I mean, please, by all means, 360 feedback is very important. There's another end of the scale where you've got people who don't want to do 360. They're not interested. They don't care. And the likes of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and the likes, um, they don't really care what others think. They're just going to carry on steamrolling along doing what they care as narcissists. So so it's a spectrum and we don't want to be too far on the narcissistic side, but equally, we want to have a healthy level of, yeah, OK, so someone doesn't like me. I can't make them like me and let go of trying to do that. Do you know what? I'll spend time with people who are more my cup of tea and, and I'm not going to change that. I, I remember someone when I was running an exercise in Australia and there was another fellow officer who was very jealous that I was the chief of staff of the brigade on this exercise and uh, had a key appointment and he thought he was better than me. And I I was gripping him for the fact that he'd been breaking the rules and and not coming back as we'd agreed at the certain time. And, and he just was venomous to me. He hated me. And I, I was really hurt by that and wanted him to like me. But you can't make people like you who don't. And the more you try and do it, the less they have respect for you. So I think we should all work on. Um, rather than popularity. Um, being treated, treating people with dignity and respect, which is everybody's birthright to be treated with dignity and respect. Um, but but to go for popularity, it's always going to go badly wrong. Well, I think that's a very, very useful bit of advice there. And I think I'll be I'll be the first among many to be taking that advice up. Um, I'd just like to rewind a little bit because you mentioned you mentioned family, you mentioned your brothers, you mentioned mother. A few times um you didn't have the easiest of starts in life um if memory serves me correctly do you want to just talk a little bit about early life and and then how you got in and then how you ended up in the army because i think that's going to be quite an interesting mm. uh, a, an interesting journey for, and certainly will provide some points of resonance for a lot of people that are going to be listening to us yeah um thank you uh michael i, I mean my first two and a half years were were really happy, uh, happy years. Um, not that I remember them because I was too small, but very loving father, very loving mother. They loved each other dearly. That um, They were very intimate and very loving. 
And uh, I grew up with two brothers, Graham and David. And so a really happy family. Um, but my father, Paul, Lieutenant Commander Paul Heath Perks, was in a very dangerous occupation. He was a fast jet pilot flying on and off aircraft carriers. And from his intake at Dartmouth Royal Naval College, so many of his peers were killed. I mean, they would be at an airbase, my mother would say, and they would watch a plume of smoke rising up from behind the houses. And they would go, that's going to be somebody on this street where the pilots and their families live. Now, we began um, living in a caravan because we, my mother and father got married uh, when they were very young. And so they weren't entitled to an army officer's quarter. So they rented a caravan beside the runway. And we had a little Nissan hut, which had a sort of coal fired burner in with a, a old metal bath and things like that. And my brother uh, didn't enamor himself to my father one moment when he, he washed my father's whites in the bath full of coal, which he'd filled it in uh, as a small boy, he'd filled it full of coal. And he thought it would be nice being black rather than white. So I don't think he ever <laughs> quite managed to get his uniform back at the right colour. Um, that's my little... Come here, come here. Hey. That's my little dog, Willow, who's decided that she's getting excited by something else. Um, so, so I think um, it began well, but then there was this uh, one moment where there was a knock on the caravan door and a very smartly dressed naval officer in full dress uniform and um, you can see for people listening, won't, but at the back on the wall is my father's naval cap and his sword. And it was a naval officer wearing a similar naval cap and full full dress uniform. And he said, um, I suppose I'm really sorry to tell you, but your husband's just been killed flying. And um, from that moment, everything in our life changed. We no longer would be guests of the Navy. We had to we had to leave, move off the base. Um, I mean, they didn't do it in an unkind way. The Navy is always very thoughtful. They lose so many officers. But really, everything changed because there was no money coming in. He was everybody expected that he was going to be an admiral, um, you know, command an aircraft carrier like the ones he flew on Eagle and Ark Royal. And he was one of the best. You know, he won the Sanderson Trophy, which is one of the fast best fighter pilots in the Navy. Uh, he flew at Farnborough in the displays and things like that. But suddenly, age 35, he was dead. And um so that start in life could have been poor me. I'm a victim because, you know, I grew up without a father, three boys on our own. We we had no money. We had to rely on a, a very nice uncle. We had Uncle Hector who paid for me to go through boarding school because there wasn't sort of male family figure around. Just my mother and my grandmother brought me up. Um, but actually, boarding school, I don't think is particularly healthy for people. I was fine, but in uh, another house, friends of mine were being abused by the deputy housemaster who was taking photographs of them and was a paedophile um, uh, interfering with them. And that ruined their lives, I think, forever. They're never going to quite get over that kind of abuse at such an early age when they're being trusted by their parents to be looked after at the boarding school. And, and that was going on. Um, and again, you know, some people had some bad experience. Luckily, I didn't have that kind of experience, but I certainly found it wrenching at the age of eight or nine to be, you know, waved at by my mother as she then drives off, leaving me with a strange housemaster who's going to look after me until half term. Um, but anyway, did all that, came back to Halifax um, and and then joined the sort of the scouts and 
did adventure training and my mother was very good in trying to give me sort of experiences of of things that men would do she couldn't do that with me so i went to john ridgeway's school of adventure in ardmore in scotland at about the age of 13 i remember running around the lock in the in the cold morning and then plunging into the icy cold water when we came back and then a hearty breakfast and abseiling and doing all these kind of exciting stuff that i'd never done before and that really opened up to me this sort of life of rather than the navy because i wasn't really didn't excited about being at sea but but i certainly was reading about captain commando and various boys own magazines about heroes and daring do and i had my father as a role model and so that was when I went um, into the army, uh, aged 18, went to Santos. We're now having our 43rd reunion of that platoon. And wow. my best my best mate, Errol Stewart, who's Jamaican army, uh, he's coming over with his um, his fiance to come and stay with my wife, Lee, and myself. And he was our best man when we got married uh, nine years ago in Jamaica. So that link and those friends that we've got, that group of 30, we're all still around. We're all still in touch with each other. That kind of level of connection is special. And um, really just to, to make a sort of final wrap up to it and why I'm doing what I'm doing, which is, I think, one of the links from that early life is I, I found the army was the making of me. I um, went to Welbeck College, which was a sixth form finishing school to leading people into the army to the technical cause. And that was quite a tough time. There were some people who were really quite unpleasant individuals who verbally bullied me and because they said I, I sounded too posh, too nice. And and so they'd spend their time from behind corners or down corridors calling out little cat calls and things like that. And I just wanted to, to, to hide in a hole and just avoid that. It made me quite shy, I think, at the time. But then Santos was the making of me. Um, I, I got chosen to be one of the cadet government of five of our 30, a cadet corporal, great rank. I was very excited. And, uh, and and they obviously saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And then I started to get outstanding reports in my early years. And then they selected me to go back as an instructor uh, after about eight years, which I was really chuffed about. I thought this is Top Gun school. I'm coming back as you know <laughs> the equivalent, one of the, the gladiators. But my first report while I was there uh, was average. I went, what do you mean I'm average? I mean, like, I've always been two levels up. I've been not just very good. I've been outstanding. And now I'm average. Well, compared to the other instructors, I I rightly was uh, average because they were exceptional and went on to gun generals and go into the SAS and do other things, but were really inspiring leaders. And I thought I've got a gap in my knowledge, my experience in like, um, I need to know what inspiring leaders do. I haven't got a father figure. What what do I, who do I tap into? So I wrote to the Fleet Air Arm Officers Association. Anybody knew Commander Paul Perks killed 1964 in Changi, Singapore, with the right to his son who wants to know more about the man he never knew, the father he never knew. And I got lovely letters from all over the world, really moving letters uh, from admirals and, and other pilots who'd flown and that he touched their lives. He'd inspired them. Invited a few of them to have lunch. We were having lunch at Sandhurst and surrounded by pictures of heroes fighting the enemy and going in with a single pistol and this kind of stuff. And and then one of the guys, one of the pilots said, Jonathan, your father bought my ticket. I said, what do you mean? He said, your father died in my aeroplane. 
he died testing my airplane to make it safe for me. He was the commanding officer. I was a young pilot, very inexperienced. And that was the aircraft that had the faulty blade on the turbine that broke off through nobody's fault apart from poor manufacturing, which Britain doesn't make very good uh, bits of kit in those days, both in the war and afterwards. And it went through the fuselage, sliced through the fuselage at hundreds of miles an hour, cutting the fuel lines, causing a fire. And Bill, who's here, uh, Lieutenant Commander Bill White, he, your father said, Bill, you need to eject. They blew the canopy off the Buccaneer. Bill ejected. Father's last words were, I'm bringing it in. We need to check this out. I'm bringing it in. But then when he banged out, a bit like Goose in Top Gun, the seat misfired mm. and sent him into the tailpiece, killing him instantly. And his body was not found for two days. But when it was found, that was when we had the smartly dressed naval officer with his yeah. peak cap knocking on the door and saying, I'm terribly sorry, your husband's been killed. And just to end the story. While at that lunch, because, of course, it was a deathling quiet, the first thing I said to the guy, I said, how long have you been carrying that thought that my father should be here having lunch with me and you should be dead? He said, I suppose, 30 years. And I said, look, for what it's worth, as his son, I release you from any obligation. That is what inspiring leaders do. They take a risk on behalf of the men they lead and the women they lead. And, and this should be the case in business today. People prepared to lose their job, to do the right thing. And he did the right thing, but it cost him his life. And then the other person was uh, Commander Bill White. And he said, Jonathan, you have a choice. You can be a victim, poor me. Uh, you know, everything in my life's gone wrong because my dad was killed when I was two and a half and we had no money and we grew up in a bad way. Or you can make your father your inspiration and your mother, who's a philanthropist now, and she does lots of good work. Even though she has not money, she 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 raises money for charities that, that need it, such as mental health for the military and other charities. Find men and women who are inspiring, learn from them and use that to grow as a leader yourself, but pass it on. And that's why I do a free podcast called Inspiring Leadership to pass it on to other people. So, um, the, the story you just told about that lunch at Sandhurst, um, so powerful. Um, you know, the, like you say, you had a choice then. Um, as to whether to continue to carry that that victim mentality or actually to to be positive and proactive and um and, and presumably are you still in touch with the, the the man that flew with your father or is he has he now passed on sadly he um he all of them now that generation um have died um my mother's died as well some some 10 years i know maybe 15 years ago um, but they were a very special generation and they believed in serving to lead that, that, that they were flying and landing on a tennis court that was pitching at 30 degrees in all directions in the middle of a storm. And they had to land a huge, heavy buccaneer, which weighed a ton. And if it went off the end and didn't catch the one wire, the aircraft carrier would sail over them. And, and their chances of living, this is why now you've got a runway going off at a slant. So at least if you you belly flop off the edge of the aircraft carrier because you've landed badly, you're not going to get steamed over by the ship. But but their chances of living was so low, but yet they lived life to the full. 
and and he was out in in the Far East trying to prevent war with Indonesia. And as Sukarno, there was the the guy who was throwing his weight around over there, a bit like China's starting to do now. And um, you know, the Royal Navy was keeping the um, the Straits of Malacca open by sailing up and down. And it's the same kind of thing now with you know the 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 Black Sea with Navy is flying the flag and sailing in the Black Sea to prevent the Russians thinking it's their own little back pond and they can close off for shipping to the rest of the world. So I think we need people these days who are prepared to lead by example if it means losing their job, if it means losing their lives. And this is why next week I'm cycling 500 kilometres in five days, raising money for help for heroes. For those servicemen and women who gave their lives and their families are without help afterwards or they've lost limbs, because I genuinely believe we need to help them. And these days, too few people give to charities or they give minuscule amounts if they do give anything, because they're all a lot of people are getting very self-focused these days. Me, 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 narcissism, selfies, pictures, you know, Instagram all about self-image or the Kardashians and their Botox and their bottoms and whatever else they've been pumping up with so that everybody loves what they look like. But it's not a real person. It's it's made up of filler. And that's sadly what many people's lives just full of filler. But there's no there's no character. There's no sense of service and duty that there used to be. No, no true substance. Mm. Um, Jonathan, where are you? Where are you cycling from and to? Um, yeah, so so thank you for asking. We we uh, go from Portsmouth over to Le Havre, and then we get taken to the start where we go to Dieppe, where the uh, Royal Marines landed, and a lot of them sadly were killed and captured in one of the early practices of the um, the D-Day invasions, which today we're recording on the sixth yep. of June, D-Day. We, we are um, the, the anniversary, correct? Yes. Seventy nine, seventy nine years ago, and um, then we're going on to Ypres the First World War battlefield where my grandfather was in the Honourable Artillery Company and got wounded twice during the battle um, and really never quite got over his PTSD. He got smacked over the head with a, a marlin spike, a big male uh, spike with nails in it that knocked him unconscious for two days and he eventually came to. They thought he was dead and George crawled back in, but he was always suffering from depression after that, um, uh, after the war, tragically. Uh, and I, I hardly remember him because I think he died when I was, you know, one or two years old. So that's going to be quite special going to his his battlefield at Ypres. And then we're going to do the retreat to Dunkirk. And um, so being someone who didn't have a bike, uh, a certain a carbon fibre bike until seven weeks ago, I've done about 15 rides with a local Witham Wheelers bike club and um, try to get the miles in so that I can cope with doing 65 miles a day for five days in a row. Um, <clears throat> so it's going to be uh, a good challenge, but it, it's it's raising money for Help for Heroes and also for my wife's charity, uh, the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, which helps girls who've suffered uh, in what we call VAWG, Violence Against Women and Girls, which sadly, since COVID, has been increasing massively. Lots of trafficking and misuse and abuse and mental health issues for young girls who need help. So Lee does that and I'm trying to raise money for them as well. Well, we'll put links to both of those uh, those charity uh, or the uh, charitable uh, raises in the show notes, so that if Thank if you, you uh, if those of, uh, those of you who are listening to this or watching this, so uh, you have the opportunity to uh, make a contribution to uh, the impressive physical feat that Jonathan's undertaking. 
Um, Cra- crazy, bloody barking mad, I think. <laughs> well, uh, having a, a year ago, almost a year to the day, I, I, I myself did a 780 kilometer ride from the north, well of, or north of Portugal to the to the to the south of Portugal. Wow! Um, and a group, uh, eight of us, we raised. Uh, about twenty-five thousand pounds for well uh, for child aid, which is a, a, a specific charity which uh, pr- uh, looks after vulnerable uh, and disabled children in uh, Ukraine and Moldova. Oh, so, oh. particularly last year, given uh, given the what what's going on, going on over there, um, it, it was very topical. But again, uh, I, I think um, which is not to diminish the the efforts of your own. I think that's going to be uh, something something to be very proud of. And I. I, I, I've been reflecting on that time from a year ago and as difficult as it was, I, I now have very wistful memories of it. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm seem to think every every hour or so at the moment, I seem to have quite a fond memory of it, which it is a dangerous thing because it means I'm probably going to end up doing uh, a similar challenge again soon. I, I think you will. What was your what was your learning from that? That big that's a big, long bike ride that how many how many days and how many um, kilometres a day? So it was five days and we did about 160 kilometres a day, 160, a, 170 kilometres a day. A it was a lot. I think, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of cycling over the last 10, 11 years, um, but I've never done that much distance on, on consecutive days. So um, I think what it what it taught me was just it was just about perseverance and perseverance and teamwork and uh, and, and just keeping one 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 pedal stroke in front of the other um, as probably one of the stronger riders I, I I stuck myself at the front put myself into the wind as wow. often as I as often as I could and try to drag people along um, sometimes sometimes the, the offers of assistance when someone's really suffering aren't always that welcome but you you, you do what you can don't you and what, um, what what's your your favorite bits of gear on your bike when you're doing that kind of distance and what tips would you give me before I go next uh, this weekend? My so I have a Wahoo, I have a Wahoo, uh, which is like a cycling computer. And that I, have, very, I have a Garmin. Yeah. Have a yeah. Garmin. Oh, sorry. And not a Wahoo. It was a Garmin. Sorry. Uh, a Garmin. And Ooh. what was good about that is particularly where you've got a climb coming up. It tells you how steep it is, how long the climb is. It, so it, particularly those really difficult moments on the bike, uh, or, you know, you you know how much further you've got to go on those in those short difficult segments and that helps you pace yourself it helps you it, it, it keeps you mentally a bit more focused i think one of the hardest things is not knowing how much further you've got to go on 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 a very difficult piece of terrain um otherwise technique wise i would say to you that it's always better to be an easier gear and to spin your legs than to just try and sort of grind it out in a, in a heavy gear because um, that's that's a that's a bit of a road to ruin and you might get through it 20 or 30 k's like that but by the time you're getting to kilometers 60 70 80 um it's gonna hurt and, make and that's sure what's it, that's what's called cadence and what's what's your cadence, cadence? what i mean i'm at about yeah, 70, I would, 70. Are you i higher? would no i think you you might want to be a bit higher than that about 85 i would say would be a good wow. cadence for you yeah right. i mean if you, if you go over 90 then then that starts to go the other way and makes it things a bit more difficult but the other thing i would say is make sure that you're um make sure that you're always well hydrated and well fueled um you you can never have too much to eat i don't think uh while while you're out riding unfortunately when you come back um the portion sizes of what you think is normal for breakfast 
uh, or you've become accustomed to on your ride, you'll you'll come back and you'll be uh, uh, you'll be very disappointed when you come back home and you have that first breakfast uh, uh, on 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 your return journey. So, um, but but just staying with that for a minute, it's interesting on. to all listeners about health and well-being. Uh, I've just been reading an interesting book, The Case for Keto. And of course, when you're riding your bike, there's all sorts of sugary things they give you, all the stops and lots of sweeties and lots of carbs, which is actually the ketogenic one is more protein and fats and less carbs. But I I can see that I'm going to have to for this take on mass amounts of carbs and lots of sugar and sugar is the white death. So how do you manage that? I suppose you're going to burn it up so quickly that it's not going to stay in your system long. Um yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, you can um, you, you can look at taking on exogenous ketones, I suppose. Um, but the the standard is normally your jelly babies, your gels, your um, your sugary, sugary isotonic sports drinks. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think being a being an, a long an endurance athlete is particularly good for your health in the long term. And certainly some uh, a friend of mine um, called Darren, who's he's a little bit older than me, not not loads older than me, but sort of five, six years older than me. How old are you, Michael? I'm 41. Um, So he's he's done a lot of a lot of triathlons, Ironmans and that sort of thing. He's now doing something called High Rocks. And he he's basically said, look, I can't do these. I can't do these crazy big endurance events anymore because the long-term damage that you do to your body by consuming by consuming these very simple carbohydrates um you know you're essentially giving yourself diabetes i don't know if i don't know if you ever saw there was an interview with um, james cracknell the uh you know the olympic rower who then he got hit by the truck in america while he was doing a transcontinental uh, bike ride and, and and it gave him brain damage in the end but oh he was God. saying he was saying that all these endurance athletes they will all end up with uh, type 2 diabetes because of the amount of um, damage that they will have done uh, to their to their livers and their pancreases in terms of their insulin insulin resistance and um and all that kind of stuff and and as as you as you and i both know as well um, there's increasing uh, increasing literature around the impact of type 2 diabetes and how it tends to lead to um, Alzheimer's and and dementia, with some people even now calling Alzheimer's type three diabetes. Type three. Well, this is in, this is very interesting because since I've started, not for very long, this very intense cycling, I've had two blood tests, and there's a thing called ALT, which is a measure of damage to the liver, and mine has gone through the roof, and I can't think of anything in my life that's changed apart from the fact that I'm now doing some quite intense cycling. And um, they're not sure whether it's fatty liver disease or it's uh, alcoholic liver disease, but I don't drink really at all alcohol um, or whether it's hepatitis or something. But the the liver has been somehow been damaged while I'm doing this intense mm. cycling um, and, and they haven't got to the bottom of what it is. So it's interesting you mentioned the damage to the liver um, of this kind of uh, diet and training. What do you? I mean, speaking of health and well-being, uh, and I know you had you had some health challenges when around the time that we that we spoke on your podcast. I know you had some health challenges um, around that time, and um, it, it seems to me that you're you're sort of uh, on the mend on that. 
Um, what what are you outside of this cycling? What have you typically been doing to maintain your own health and well-being, both in terms both in terms of diet and exercise and and other stuff? Yeah, I mean it's an it's an interesting one. I I read widely. Um, well, in my case as a as a dyslexic, I listen widely to podcasts. Um, Dr. Mark Hyman, the Doctor's Pharmacy. Um, uh, another uh, Professor Sinclair, who's about longevity, um, and, and lots of books on cancer. I was having had my brother die of cancer in ten weeks from diagnosis to death. Um, Anti-cancer living is a book I'm just looking at there, and um, you know how not to die and things like that. So I've I practice a lot of stuff that I encourage my own clients to do because I I'm now getting a uh, my clients to have a particular top-notch doctor and nutritionist to work with them and and so hit training uh, yoga um, i do hot cold therapy so every morning i go out to the hot tub i'm lucky enough to have a hot tub that we've had built in the garden and uh, sit out there do a bit of mindfulness and then i just go in for two minutes in the cold plunge um, uh, and drop the temperature right down um, and then i'll try and do sort of 80 press-ups uh, a day in little batches of 40 and then four of ten and then I'll do in one go 80 bodyweight squats just as a sort of daily routine. Um, and, and that's what I've been ticking over. But I think going from that to doing, you know, 40 miles one on the Saturday and 62 miles on the Sunday back to back, I think is quite a lot for the body mm. to kick into because I only gave myself seven weeks from signing up to actually having to do this event. So that might have overstressed the body and as you say final point and i'm interested in your thoughts is um you look at people like paula radcliffe another you know i did double mountain marathons that's my only claim to fame is i hold the world record for the cyprus double mountain marathon in eight hours and nine minutes um up is uh, what is it? i think it's a was it five thousand foot mountain i forget how tall it was but anyway in cyprus mount trudos um it is that um there's a lot of information caused by endurance uh, in the body, which mm. has to, has to be flushed through. That's why I do the hot cold therapy. But but you know you put in a lot of cycling and or a lot of running, and you you know David Goggins is a hero of mine. But he's he's wrecked his body by just the endurance and the seal training and the and the uh, the cycling and the marathons he's done. What's what's your thoughts? But on on David Goggins, I mean the having uh having listened to his uh i think it's can't hurt me i think that was a, the, the first book i mean the guy the guy's the guy's crazy i mean he's an absolute inspiration but he's also in he's he's also crazy I and mean, after destroying his hands to try and do that that pull-up challenge and then you hear about all the things that he's done to himself and i i heard him on joe rogan a few months ago uh in advance of his the launch of his new book and he and he was just as someone who has had has knee problems myself to hear him talk about what they've had to do to his knees um and i think as soon as he's able to run he's going to be back out there running he's 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 addicted to it it's 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 incredible um it's incredible what he's what he he's able to put himself through um but i look at that and i think that he's he's inspiring but he's probably taking it to an extreme that I think most people would almost say, okay, that's great, but I think that's too, you're now, it's too much. And they look at what he's done to himself. You look at uh, like Ronnie Coleman, the bodybuilder, 
Um, and the man, the man can now basically can't walk. And you have to, you have to question for the average person. It's not worth, it's not worth putting yourself through all that to, um, you know, for, for those, for those moments of glory and, and fame. Mm. Um, I, I think, I think it's too much. Um, no, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about your morning routine. Cause I think it's really, I, I think it's really great. I, I myself do cold plunges albeit I don't have a particularly cold tub at the moment because the weather's a bit too a bit too mild um it turns out I was I'm actually t- I've actually made myself too acclimated to cold plunges I was back when it was cold I was I was doing six minutes in sort of 45 Fahrenheit water which means that I became I've become very acclimated to it and I almost have to uh, and I was doing it every day so I'm, I've actually ended up not getting the real benefits of that of that cold plunge that cold therapy um so i've had to sort of scale it back so that when the water actually is truly cold i will actually get something from it um so that that's some that's something uh, interesting but what what what's what i think you're doing right which is i think she's called uh susanna soberg she's the danish expert on these things is you're you're doing your warm first and then you're going to cold rather than yeah. going from cold to hot so um so for those for those of our listeners who are interested in these things i know there are a few of you out there uh because you tell me about it from time to time uh certainly jonathan's what my wife would call miracle morning uh sounds like a great uh, a great thing to follow in terms of diet are you are you still doing intermittent fasting or are you or, or, or and that's and then you're breaking fast in a ketogenic or keto friendly manner well, well, this is this is very interesting. Yeah, the the AM and the PM bookends, uh, as they refer to, uh, those are the bits of the day you can control. And so, getting up, my my day is very nice. If if we haven't got the grandchildren, so we the grandchildren living with us at the moment for about the last ten months. So, the two year old granddaughter might wake up at uh, six thirty, and so we're probably all up, one up, all up. Um, but generally, I like to get up at seven thirty. I'll write my five minute journal.com so an, a, a gratitude journal i think is a very important thing i've been doing for about 10 years every day morning and night gratitude journal um i'll then be brushing my teeth and probably listening to brian johnson or a motivational speaker uh or i listen to the daily j on calm and i normally listen to the daily j on calm or um one of the other guys um, on the the daily calm while I'm in the hot tub for about five minutes uh, and that's at about 39 40 degrees and then I'm going to drop it down to it doesn't really the research apparently now says that we, we, we get a bit carried away having to make it in you know, a freezing water or swimming around in ice which I've done that as well but I find if it's just morning cold from overnight it might be eight degrees it might be 10 degrees but there's a it's the it's the temperature it's the delta difference the change yeah. from 40 down to eight degrees and actually they say that two minutes is probably enough you know start doing more than that you don't need to you're and right it's, yeah it's just you're just trying to help the body and then as you say the intermittent fasting which uh ketosis and and also autophagy where it's killing off the cancerous cells and uh, the folded proteins and things like that I make that a particular point, obviously, with a brother who, who's died of cancer um, and, and a grandmother who died of cancer. It doesn't mean that I'm going to inherit the same thing at all, but you can change the environment you're in. So you make it much more conducive to a healthy living. So I tend to break my fast anywhere between 
nine and 11, depending when I ate in the evening, if I ate at six or eight at seven. But I, I like to leave at least 12 hours, but ideally I do a 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of eating. Mm. Um, but as I've been doing the cycling, I certainly need to eat more than just, I used to have two meals a day when I broke the fast and then the evening meal. Now I find I'm slipping in a third meal because I, I just want to build myself up. And as I'm preparing for going away on this endurance cycling, I'm actually getting more sleep in using the Aura Ring. I've used Aura, I've used Whoop, and I've got the Apple Ultra. Um, and then like you, I've got the Garmin on the bike and, and the Polar uh, strap to give me the heart rate. Because, um, you know, you just need to look after your health and well-being. And, and I'm not actually on a ketogenic diet, but what I am doing if I wasn't in the cycling, I'd certainly be reducing or cutting out the carbs and certainly the sugars and the crap cakes and flowers and biscuits and all that kind of sweeties that people have um, and have, you know, good protein and lots of vegetables. I, I went through a year of um, vegan, but no, I don't want to be a vegan. I, I've tried that, but actually that doesn't work for me. The lentils and the chickpeas certainly cause havoc with my, <laughs> my wind and uh, stomach. Um, and and I, I find that having this morning routine and the evening routine of, of the wind down quite good. I'm getting more deep sleep now. Um, but while I'm having the, the liver checked out, I've stopped taking supplements. But I used to take a number of quite a number of supplements for longevity. But I'm just removing those until we know what's causing this uh, mm. liver problem. Yeah. What 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 sort of um what sort of supplements have you have you been have you or would you swear by you know if if you were to sort of distill it down to one or two one to one to three particular supplements you know what would you recommend? Yeah. Um. Well, I I was you know studying this carefully and I have my own nutritionist Barbara Cox Lovesey who I recommend. She's now um, director of one of the big nutrition companies. But I, I would tend to have precision hydration, so electrolytes, which have got magnesium, potassium, calcium, and as the first thing with a glass of water. And I also uh, believe in having a, the old cold cup of coffee, not cold, sorry, a cool cup of coffee. So one cup during the day, very good. I'm big into the microbiome and the gut. I, I use Zoe, which is did all the tests on my microbiome, what the good gut bacteria is and the bad. Um, because of all the wear and tear of my marathon running and cycling over the years, I have started to take glucosamine and chondriatin mm. uh, and, and MSN. I take omega-3. Uh, I'm a great believer in that, EPA and DHA. Turmeric, ginger and black pepper is a good one. CQ10 for the mitochondria. It's the little energy cells and CQ10 does help little mitochondria. And then Magical D, which has a mixture of uh, vitamin D, magnesium, um shiitake mushrooms and then cultrix which is a mixture of um uh different um bifo uh, bacterium and subcell i can't even pronounce it lactus bacterius and all that kind of anyway yeah uh, i used to take b12 but i made that too high and that was one of the things they said look just take out the b12 because you're too high quercetin which activates the longevity gene uh transfer of xerotrol which is good for longevity um, and then because um, I'm an old man and I've got an enlarged prostate, I have to take sore palmetto. I then take NMN, which is good for boosting the NAD. And I take a bit of marine collagen, alpha lipoic acid and biocultures for the for the stomach. So there's there's a, a, a lot of supplements that I uh, have taken and I've just taken them all out for now. 
while we work out what's going on with the liver. How about you? Is that those ring true? I see you nodding at various stages. I, I, I probably not quite not quite so many. I I do uh, I do creatine. Uh, I take magnesium in the evening. The um, omega omega three. Um, I do creatine because I I try to do resistance training three times a week. Um, and I'm very have a very active lifestyle. I I have been doing the glucosamine and chondritin uh, because of my uh, my dodgy knees. Um, as I said, omega threes something that I, that I take. Um, a lot of the things that you've said um, sound sound very familiar. Sound like uh, so, sounds a lot like a, a podcast episode with Dr. Peter Atier. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that was he he influenced me. Yeah, definitely. yeah. So, um, uh, just talking about journaling for a second. I have to say that it's, it's something that um, my coach and I have spoken about me doing for for quite some time. I find it very hard to get in the habit of doing so. Obviously, you've got, you've formed that habit now. Um, what advice would you give to me and other listeners who who like the idea of journaling but somehow struggle with with actually getting down to it and, and actually just writing something every day, getting in the habit and practice of doing so. Yeah, well, um, there's a number of books written on sort of daily habits, but one of them is quite quite good, James Clear, Atomic Habits, you might have read. I have read um, that, yeah. And, and it's this idea of making the things you want to do as easy as possible and the things you want to stop, like sugary foods and I bloody hate Coca-Cola. And my my son-in-law, you know, came in and he bought food for the kids and he bought this big bottle of Coke. I go, that's like sugar water. It's death. You know, what are you doing? Don't give this to kids who are one and two years old um, or yourself. So I would actually have none of that around or even I, I've generally given up wine. So I just don't buy it in. So if we want some wine, um, I'll go out. And when my wife says, can you just go and get me a bottle of wine? But it's not there for her most of the time. Mm. So so. Make the things that you want to stop up in a cupboard where you've got to go and get a key from another room or this kind of stuff. But things like the journal, it's there beside the bed and the alarm goes off at 730. I roll over. I just pick up the journal. I don't have to think. It's just there with a pen. It make it really easy. And I just all I have is three minutes and I, I put down, you know, what I'm grateful for. It's just three things there. Three things I'm excited about in the day and who I am. And that's enough. And then I get up and I go and do my teeth. So it's almost like if you're if you're someone who can't train, you have the trainers and the shorts and your T-shirt beside the bed. So when you step out, they're there and you just put them on. You don't think you want just like um, it was uh, Barack Obama that he has hanging in his cupboard, blue suit, white shirts and red ties. And that, that's the, the cupboard's just full of those. That's just all there is. So he doesn't have to think, what am I going to wear today? He just takes the white shirt, puts it on, ties up his red tie, puts on his blue suit and he goes to work. You're not using up energy, mental energy, thinking, oh, what should I do now? Should I should I do journaling now or should I go downstairs and do a journal? So I find just making it really simple for myself is the best. And a routine. I, I Well, I'm going to I'm going to make a habit of that. Uh, and I think that was really good advice. Jonathan so I, I I love that very much I will be uh you, you need to check in with you can check in with me and I and I will I will tell you if that's worked but I I can tell you that I, I can tell you that I think that there's a very good chance that it will yeah um, and, and and with that one just make sure you say to yourself I am going to do this I I want to do this I'd like to do this I will do it not I should do it I ought to do mm. it and I'm going to try 
As Yoda said to Luke Skywalker when Luke said he was trying. There is no try. There is no try. There is either do or don't do, but there's no try. So trying is lying. You're lying to yourself. I said to you, Michael, I'm going to try and turn up on time for your podcast. You know I'm going to be late. But if I say I'll be there or if I can't be there, I say, look, can we delay half an hour? Because I'm going to be I I can't make it on time for that. I will be half an hour later than planned. Let's start half an hour later. But don't say to people you're going to try. You know you don't trust the person who says I'll try or let me be honest with you. For goodness sake, are you not being honest with me all the rest of the time? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's such a commonly used uh, figure of speech, isn't it? And yet when you actually drill down to it, like you said, how is that an acceptable uh, expression that yeah, is that's right. so commonly used? Um, Jonathan, I'm I'm conscious we haven't quite uh, we haven't quite quite touched on your how you went from your career in the military into into the world of of, of coaching and and inspiring leadership, and and I feel like it'd be remiss of me not to give you the platform to to tell our listeners how that happened, and I appreciate it's been a bit of a jump, but. Mm you're in the military you're in the military for for how long uh, uh tw- 20 years in the military 20 and years 20 years as a business leader and then you know since then i've been running my own business um yeah it's it's, it's an interesting one because i always imagined i would have a, a career as a military officer till i was 55 when you have to retire but actually i left at 40 which was early um, I went to the Army Staff College, which, you know, only the only, I don't know, 20 um, percent of your generation gets selected to go to there's exams and selection reports you've got to get and came out in the top 10 percent, which was, you know, I was very I'd worked very hard at it. But I think I was way too intense, took myself far too seriously, I think, and was very uh, ambitious for a, a career to become a general and perhaps even you know, to make up for the fact my father never became an admiral, perhaps I could, you know, my mother used to say, maybe this is, and this came up in my uh, Hoffman Institute, as I look back on it, my mother used to say, Jonathan, you know, when I was a second lieutenant, like the beginning of my career, she, I'd be at table at home with her and I'd yawn, but I wouldn't put my mouth, my hand up. I, I've always been a yawner. And she'd go, Jonathan, don't yawn. Generals don't yawn. Now, there's this subliminal message that I was going to be a general that she needed me to live the life that she imagined she's going to have vicariously. She was going to living through me. And actually, so there was a little bit of that kind of messaging that, you know, you will be a general. And I, and I was ambitious to become one. But actually, um, when I was doing a couple of my jobs, I, one of them was to be assistant to the head of the army. And I saw all the army board members. Uh, the person I worked for was a a dragon of a man called Field Marshal the Lord Inge. He scared the living bejesus out of everybody he met. And and I was his, uh, I'd followed two other ADCs who'd both been fired midway through their tour of a year. I survived, but it was a pretty bruising experience because he was a ferocious guy and didn't take prisoners. Um, but I met his boss once, uh, who he'd been an ADC to, but that's another story, ADC A to Con. But um, so I did staff college, which was the sort of the, the avenue through the, the junior generals course, that kind of stuff. But I didn't get promoted on the first opportunity to lieutenant colonel from major, nor the second, nor the third. So I started to get a message that somehow back in my history, someone had put a black mark, the old black ball in the bag when they're choosing mm. someone. 
And I hadn't been told what it was that, you know, promoted in his term. And looking back, I I was OK in the military. I, I did well. I did sort of airborne training and all sorts of things and air mobile and went to staff college and was assistant to the head of the army and had some great times, was a, a spy working for GCHQ through 14 Electronic Warfare Signal Regiment. So I had a, a ball. I had an absolute great time. But somebody along the line, I now have seen the information, so I know it, a man I'd never met put on my report as a sort of senior officer that um, I questioned his judgment. Now, whoa, as, a, as an army officer, to have your judgment questioned, you're dead in the water, son. And and the other thing is, you know, promoting in his turn. So rather than promote at the earliest opportunity or promote now, promoting in his turn was another signal that just slow this guy down. He's too ambitious. He wants to move too fast. And and so as I looked at this, I thought I'm I'm really not going to be the best of the best in this. And, and is this what I want to spend the rest of my life doing? So so that's when I started to think, well, what else could I go into business? So I then applied to be one of the very few first people to do an MBA in the army. And they went, we'll sponsor you. We'll pay for you to do your MBA in the army as an army officer. But you have to do it in your spare time. You know, we're not going to give you any time off, do it evenings and weekends. And so um, with quite young children, probably aged about five or six years old, Harrington Brownie, I, I used my evenings and my weekends while my um, my wife was studying to become a teacher herself. She was an army officer as well. Um, and we both worked our socks off to for me to get my MBA over three years, I think part-time study and her to become a trained teacher and that opened up a whole world because then I found PricewaterhouseCoopers, IBM, I worked in both organizations um, and then went on to become a managing director in a PLC uh, and, and I loved that whole world and while I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, my friend who's taking me cycling Adam Fox Edwards who was a tornado pilot in the Gulf War One, he said um, you know, you've just arrived in PwC and and they're taking you to some islands off Sweden to go and help them with this thing called coaching. What is this coaching? I said, I don't know, but I've just said, I'll do it. And so I went with two experts who were coaches and almost acted as a sort of wingman to them uh, while they taught the partners in PwC about executive coaching. And I thought, I've arrived. I've I've found my home. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I think this is just great. You listen to people, you ask great questions, they work it through, they take ownership, you you hold them accountable and you support them and encourage them. I think this is fabulous. And that was like, goodness, how long ago? 20, 20 years ago, in those early days when people weren't doing executive coaching. And yeah, the rest is the rest is history. Now the podcast and coaching CEOs and boards around the world. And uh, I'm in the lovely position that I can choose who I want to work with. And and if I'm really uh, not a good fit for someone, I'll say, look, I don't think it's me, but let me recommend somebody else um, because I want to be able to serve the leaders and the teams I have uh, as clients and give them my full attention. Well, you, you've clearly earned the right to be in a position to do that. And that's clearly a, a, a consequence and a function of of how good you are in in that coaching space do you think that the military the military background and i suppose the training you had in the military has been a has been helpful in your career in in the field of performance coaching 
um, and executive coaching. Do you think you would be as as effective as a as a coach had you not had that background in the military? No, I, I think um, I've been lucky enough. I, I've interviewed a couple. I don't normally have coaches on the podcast, but there's been a couple of exceptional people. Andrew Griffiths, who was a Royal Navy officer, a very fine officer in the Navy. He's an exceptionally good coach. Um, and also um, an old friend of mine, Jim, from uh, Staff College. And Jim um, served in the Royal Marines and then he went to the Australian uh, Navy and was a captain in the charge of amphibious boats. He's a brilliant coach as well. I'm just about to interview another person who's become a coach from the military. And some of the best, and particularly those done special forces work and things like that, make exceptional coaches. And the fact is you've you've really had to learn from the ground upwards. You've had to inspire people who will follow you and potentially die in the process. And if you're a crap leader, they won't even follow you out of curiosity. Um, they will, you know, potentially, you know, I've known soldiers not be prepared to work for officers and the officer has been removed from that job and eventually left the army because they're not good leaders. So the army and Navy and the Air Force have a continuous selection process. I mean, it took two years for me to be selected, to trained to become a leader. They must have spent, I reckon, £250,000 over my career developing me on leadership courses. If people spend 25000 on a programme for a leader in business, even very senior, they get a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you think if you think education's expensive, try the cost of ignorance was what one person <laughs> said to me. You know, it's really expensive when people are poor leaders and too many organizations cut back on leadership as as a oh well let's let's do a saving. We don't spend on development and, and leadership and coaching. That's very expensive. Let's cut back on that. I remember um uh, it'd be unfair to name a client, but a a very famous defense contracting client who is now making an absolute fortune with the Ukraine war. But at the time when there was a cutback, they went, let's stop all development, all coaching. And I was coaching someone who'd had a bit of a breakdown. They were having a really tough time and they needed coaching support. They said, no, we're not paying for a single another uh, coaching session. I said, I'll do it for free. Let me finish the program. This person needs help. No, no, out of principle, we're stopping all training. And, and that really worries me. That really worries me. Because people, you know, in the in the heat of the battle, when they're they're busiest, that's when they need coaching. Don't say to me, when I've finished this busy time, um, then I'll have some development. It's like the Navy SEALs. Their motto. Do you know what the Navy SEALs' motto is? Um, no, I, I, possibly, but I think I've forgotten it. I, uh, I well, should it, know it. I should know it after listening to a whole uh, audio book of Goggins, shouldn't I? Well, it, it is one of those ones. The only easy day was yesterday, which demonstrates that you have stamina. The only easy day was yesterday. So you've got to have stamina because today's going to be harder, you know, and, and this is as slow as it's going to get in your life. Yeah. The, 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 the pace of your life will not be slowing down. So accept that this is this is this is um, this is the way it is. And pace yourself because the only easy day was yesterday. Um, you um, you mentioned the Ukraine war. Um, you see, uh, as of today, I think the 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 Russians have just blown up uh, the the dam at Novokakova. Um, do you do you have any thoughts on on how that 
how that uh, conflict is playing out. I mean, do you have any general general impressions on that? I mean, obviously, if you if you want to keep your counsel, obviously feel free to. But mm. uh, I that doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like the person that you are. No. Well, I, I mean, I I tend to rely on more of the experts who are following it closely, like David General David Petraeus. Um, if you follow him on LinkedIn, he he'll pass on the the wisdom of some of the research organisations looking at the battle. And also uh, Chip Chapman, General Chip Chapman, who uh, I had on the podcast, and he often gives views about what's going on with Russia and their plans. So I do I do listen to people who make it their business. And I, I don't want to be an armchair general, but uh, we've got ourselves into a, a very long war there, which is Russia versus NATO by any other name. Uh, whether the Russian stooge, otherwise known as Donald, um gets into power and stops support for ukraine would be very interesting um but i think russia is relying on the west getting tired of supporting financially and personally ukraine and and that they can keep hold of the land that they've got but it, for me it reminds me i'm a great historian and um andrew roberts uh, who's going to be writing the next book on conflict with david petraeus is going to come on as my guest, uh, Baron um, Roberts of Belgravia. And he's a fascinating guy. I've read many of his books. I recommend all of them. Um, that This is, for me, a repeat of Hitler and his grabs of bits of land, whether it be the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia or the Anschluss, where he took Austria, uh, and then how he and Stalin divided up Poland between themselves. Um, and and they're bullies, and Putin's a bully, and we need to stand up to him. We've also got problems with Russia, with uh, China as well. So I think we're going to be in a, a very unstable time, and I think we are fighting a war now. It's just a hybrid war, and it's a cyber war. But you know, they're they're taking out Russia's taking out, and uh, North Korea and China are taking out certain businesses. You know, time and again, you know, the Woodland Trust, who I love and support. You know, they had a cyber attack. You know, you've got someone else having cyber attacks. They're constantly going on all the time. So we're we're essentially at war without declaring war. And and I think we shouldn't be naive about it. So that's just my armchair view from from the people that I respect who've talked to me about about it. It's not my own um, thoughts overnight, but that's just that their their views. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've certainly heard similar similar points of view and. Um difficult to argue with a lot of that you know there is an element of that there are elements uh that of sense that suggest that support for ukraine is necessary for the simple reason that if that it it will not stop there russia will not stop at ukraine it will continue and it's um for those for those people who say well it's not our not our problem it's not now but it we don't if we don't deal if it's not dealt with now then there is that potential that it that it will be much closer to our doorstep and then it really will be our problem so that was that was ex you're, you're right michael that was exactly the words that people were using to chamberlain about the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. Mm. it's a long way away a little country that's nothing to do with us it was when it became world war ii and and i think uh without being a scaremonger we have World War Three being fought at the moment, but just in a different style. And, and Russia uses Mashkarovka, which is their term that 
we did a lot of studies when I was uh, at Sandhurst and back as an instructor and then at Staff College about the Russian tactics. Russia and China play a longer game, a very long game. We, we're much more short term capitalist view mm. on the, the next quarter that they're, they're playing a long game. And, and, and Russia's been, you know, whether it be sleeper agents that they leave in the UK or places like that, or whether it be uh, technology that, that, you know, the Chinese will put in our traffic light systems and our cars and stuff. And do they then press a button and certain kit starts to fail on us? You know, there's all sorts of things that um, we've just been asleep at the wheel mm. while China's been doing its Belt and Road. And when I go to Jamaica and Sri Lanka and Botswana and other places, who owns the mines and the ports? China does with civilians, Chinese civilians who are trained by the People Liberation Army and their weapons trained soldiers. Um, they're just wearing civilian clothes, but they've got you know, elements of their army all around the world. And they've America's fallen asleep while China's become the best friend of many of the African countries. So we, we have some really serious problems brewing. Well, it's uh, certainly certainly food for thought. Um, I guess as, as we wind down, I, I just I guess we're just coming up to the last couple of questions. Um, Jonathan, you're you're an MBE. Uh, when when were you uh, when were you fortunate enough to uh, receive your your medal and uh, did you did you get it from the late Queen or or, or was it a different member of uh, the royal family who awarded it to you? Yeah, we, we have we have um, two awards. The more senior is the OBE, known as Other Buggers Efforts, and M- <laughs> M- MBE, my bloody efforts. But actually, I was very lucky that it wasn't just my bloody efforts. I was the chief of staff of the army's largest brigade called 15 Northeast Brigade, based in York. And we had to help uh, the Australians train for East Timor, which was a massacre being done by militia. And they were going in as the United Nations. And so because the UK had a lot of experience in various peacekeeping operations, um, our headquarters um, hived off another headquarters. We sort of grew a second head and recruited people, about 120 people from around the army to go and train the Australians in Australia for it with the New Zealanders, uh, Americans and the French Canadians. And because it went so well and their deployment was great success and they stopped the massacre and the raping and the murdering, um, I went to see Liz, uh, the late Queen Elizabeth I, uh, second, should I say, but that's not not quite that old. No, no. Um, <laughs> in in the palace and and get my my MBE for uh, for the work that we did in our spare time helping um, prevent the East Timor massacre. Well, it's it's funny because I was I was quite young at the time. I was on my gap year in Australia, and obviously being on Australia's doorstep, uh, it was big news over there. So uh, yeah. There's, I wouldn't say I had a close personal connection, but uh, uh, there was certainly a relevant connection uh, for myself there. Um, okay, well, I, I guess just as a sort of wind down, really, um, is there if there's any one particular business or life hack that you'd like to share with our listeners before before we say goodbye? Uh, is there anything in particular you'd you'd like to share? Because obviously you've got so many, and 90 seconds is probably not enough to to distill all your many years of, of wisdom and experience, but um, is is there if there was sort of one or two things that you'd like to share with our listeners what would you like to say well as you've probably heard with the kind of problems i've had in my life which i've been very open about probably far too open but i'm happy about that 
Um, it's not the fact you have a problem. It's how you think about it and respond to the problem that marks out the average from the inspiring leaders. And it's about two things, learning and action. So when something goes wrong, what have I learned? What am I going to what action am I going to take? And that really your attitude defines your altitude, your attitude defines your altitude. So your attitude to something will define whether you are successful in life and happy or whether you are unsuccessful and unhappy. And if you have a choice between success and happiness, always go for happiness because success is getting what you want and happiness is wanting what you already have. And I consider myself very happy because I, um, however much longer I've got, whether it's a day or a week, I am very lucky to be married to Lee. I'm very lucky to have a lovely family. Um, two daughters getting married this year. One daughter's got married already and son's got married and we've got grandchildren. And I consider myself lucky and uh, I know that it'll all end in death, but I'm going to have a good life and a good death. So thank you for having me on your podcast, Michael. Jonathan, where can people find you if people want to get, want to get in touch? Yeah, probably the easiest place is uh, jonathanperks.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-P-E-R-K-S.com. And on there, they'll, uh, there's free gear. You can listen to all the podcasts. You can listen to top tips, two minute top tips, book reviews, and you can have some free stuff on resilience and health. Just click on there. And if you want to follow the newsletter, um, you can click on there and uh, I'll keep in touch with you that way. Uh, and if someone wants to to get in touch with regards to becoming a client or booking consultation uh, from my own research, it looks like that's that's something they can do there as well. Yeah, go to the website and just uh, just book a call. We'll have a chat. Uh, and it, in addition, Jonathan is also on uh, LinkedIn and he's also on Instagram. So he's well worth a follow there as well. Um, Jonathan, appreciate you. Thank you for joining us today. It's been an absolute honour and a privilege and uh, we'll hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks, Michael. It's been a pleasure being with you. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.